I'm going to do it right here. Everybody's coming in now. Can y'all hear me? Yes. <clears throat> Melissa heard me, of course. All right, guys. Welcome, everybody. Like I said, we, we're getting going. We're going to go to about uh, four after 10 because 10 o'clock means everybody logs in late. So I'm just going to start letting people in. Let's um, thank y'all for coming. How you doing, Mike? Doing great. You doing all right, bro? All is good. That case looks damn good, by the way. We're gonna hit. We're gonna hit big on that. Oh, the case. That's why I brought in the lefty, you know? You mean Aldonis Chapman, the new splitter? The splitter? I think you're actually a righty, so I brought in the righty. It's unhittable. <laughs> hey, Brother Mike, can you hear me? Yeah, who's that? This is Brian Cardoza, the defense... Oh. The defense lawyer is going to keep you guys honest today. I didn't know defense lawyers knew how to work computers. You know, we barely do, as a matter of fact, just barely. <laughs> Brian Cardoza is the dude. He's the man at SoCal Edison. Ah, the man, the number one. In fact, there's never been anybody. That's right. Can everybody hear me? Is it is it garbled? Can you hear? Yeah, it's okay. garbled. Yeah, it was mine's garbled. I don't know if yours. Yeah, it may just be me. Yeah. Well, I, clearly, SoCal Edison doesn't charge us enough for their. We'll raise. We'll take care of that. All right, guys, so we're going to go, um, who we got? Another minute or two. Awesome. We got a good, good uh, group of uh, people today and a lot of good information. Hey, Dustin. Hey. Would you uh, email that jury instruction information to Reza at Torque Law and Reza yeah. will, will uh, print it for me? For sure. Reza, do you hear that? So 
we're going to have a bunch of different things uh, to talk about in the, the last part of this. I need y'all's help. But I think in helping me and, and Dustin and I are, are supposed to start trial in Ventura next Monday, but it's probably going to trail for a, a week or two. Um, we have a conundrum that we're trying to figure out different arguments on. And I wanted to quickly ask a little focus group and have people come up with ideas based on the law. And in part, it's a, an example of trial strategy and how you deal with it. Because we got about a million and a half to two that we could settle the case for. And maybe we're looking for four to five and we have this issue that we got to deal with of which motion to eliminate practice is going to make a big deal. And we're looking for ways to argue. So I would really appreciate people's thoughts. Uh, we'll tell you the facts, just generally kind of the law. And I'd love open season to the extent you can help here, to the extent you want to email me later. But I think it would benefit everybody because these are the issues that come up that start at the beginning of a case that sometimes you focus group those issues, but sometimes you don't. And you don't know. Oh, and Mary's on here. So Mary, you know what case we're talking about. Um, that, Mary that's why I turned it. Most of the time. <laughs> uh, but these are the strategic issues. And so people talk to me about trial and they're like, show me how to do this. And I'm like, well, I can, I can give you kind of a general framework for an opening, for a closing. I can tell you about how you schedule and whatever. But trial strategy is so important because one thing has a, uh, a ripple effect on the rest of the trial. And the only thing you can expect in trial is the unexpected. And so things like this change. And so I want to be prepared if the judge rules one way in motion, if he rules another way. If we start one way and then a door is open and we're able to go the other way. If I can get a witness to say something, if I can't, and all of these things are what make good trial work. So I'm looking forward to it. So let's go ahead and get going. Can everybody hear me so far? So thank y'all. We are, I am here from the beautiful offices of Law Works in Irvine, California. Um, Reza, uh, and Poonam Torch today created this amazing space. We're going to talk about it in just a little bit. But I wanted to hit a couple of different topics. And a lot of the stuff we talk about is things that I say, oh, I didn't really know that, or I learn it. And I say, well, if I don't know it, and I've been, I'm older than most everybody here, probably y'all don't know it either. Or maybe some of y'all don't know it. And so um, I want to introduce Paul Vega. Paul and I have known each other, and now we are pickleball aficionados. We play pickleball together. Um, we um, socialize together, but he also is an amazing structured settlement expert. And I asked him to come on, tell us a little bit about what's called a qualified settlement fund. And it's called a QSF. And so I just want to start before we talk to, to Paul, is just... Does everybody understand that when you settle a case and your client wants to structure the money or you want to structure your fees, the big kicker is constructive receipt of the money, which is why if your client's gonna structure or you're gonna structure, 
that you want to put into the settlement agreement that the money from the insurance company is paid directly to the structure. Because if it's given to your trust account, then all of the benefits, the tax benefits go away because now you have constructive receipt of the money. And the problem sometimes is your client doesn't know what they want to do right away. You don't know what you want to do right away. You don't know if this money that you get, you want to structure or not, because you may have another big case that's going to settle later that year, and you don't want to use all that money, but you don't want to commit to a structure. And so I was like, how do you deal with this? So Paul Vega, please introduce yourself and tell us how a constructive settlement fund makes all this a lot easier. Good morning, everybody. Uh, and thank Can't you. hear you. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Great, great. So thank you. Good morning, Mike, and good morning, everyone. Uh, and thank you for giving me I the can't opportunity. Hear him. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, everybody else can hear me, Mike. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I just wanted to say good morning. Um, yeah, Mike's absolutely right. Um, a qualified settlement trust or qualified settlement fund uh, gives you the opportunity to buy time. I'll go to Sammy's system. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. Um, and I, I think that time is, is one of the most important things here. Um, yep. It gives you the opportunity to, to utilize a structured settlement. Um, yeah. A lot of times, uh, Mike is absolutely right that we don't have a lot of time and clients aren't sure what they wanna do with their money yet. So uh, what we do is we, we open up a QSF and it buys you time, gives your clients. Okay. So I can't really, uh, this is not working all that well for me. I couldn't uh, hear Can you hear Mike? Say something to see if I can hear on this. Hey Mike, it's Paul. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah, no, I can hear you here. Awesome. Can anybody say anything here? Hey Mike, it's Mario. Can you hear me? Yeah. I'm just gonna stay in here then. Yeah. All right. So, um, Paul, tell us about what a the benefits, like how you have seen people use QSFs, qualified settlement funds, to their benefit, both clients but also lawyers. So, so yeah, lawyers. Um, the most important thing is it buys time. It gives you guys the opportunity to make a decision, um, not not on the spot whether or not you want to structure your attorney's fees. Um, I think that that becomes a, a huge advantage. Um, and, and most importantly, it, it buys time. Um, clients, that as well, uh, gives them the opportunity not to feel rushed. Um, I think a lot of times what we see as clients once they receive their settlements, we're under the gun to make things happen immediately. Uh, and I feel like this gives clients the opportunity to take their time and make a decision um, accordingly. So what's the logistics of setting up a qualified settlement fund? When we settle a case, we, we have to tell as part of the agreement, like when you structure sometimes, if you settle a case with certain insurance companies like AIG in particular, they either don't want to structure or they require their own structure person to be a part of it. That's right. And I have 
on the same with QSF. So when you're negotiating a settlement, if you're in a mediation, you got to kind of, as you get close, say, well, if we settle this case, I'm going to want to potentially put it in a, a QSF or I'm going to want a structure because you don't want the settle and then the carrier go, oh, I'm not going to do this. But logistically, just quickly, if we wanted to do a QSF, how is that different, if at all, from a regular structure with language in the settlement agreement? Yeah, we help get the language together. Uh, and it's, it's basically just telling defense here, we're using the QSF um, and the transition is really easy. And actually it's typically a benefit to defense too. It cuts them dry, lets them cut their check and lets them move on. Um, so we found that it's, it's just a, a great tool uh, to help move things along and everybody uh, kind of what they want. Every, everybody has time. It gives defense time to get rid of the case and it gives uh, our side time to take a, you know, make a good decision. Are there a lot of fees involved in the setup and the distribution through a QSF? There is fees, but our job is to help you guys find solutions that are, are affordable uh, to your clients as well as yourself. And I will tell you, I have found that the fees are pretty negligible. I think to write a check out of the QSFs like 30 bucks or 40 bucks or something like that. And then there's a setup fee. But if you've got a lot of, if, it's, if there's a lot of money involved, it's well worth it. So let's talk about real life, okay? Let's say you settle a case and it's a big one. Or you settle a case and you want to use some of the money, but not all of the money. You want to take it right now. Can you put some money in a QS, or I guess you could put it all in a QSF, right. take some of it immediately and leave the rest in the QSF, right? That's right. That's the advantage. So how would you guys use it? This is the way. So let's say you have, obviously, we all have cash flow issues, right? We have needs. And let's say you settle a case early in the year. And you're going to make a $400,000 fee. But you're like got a couple of good cases in the pipeline. And so you want to have enough money to live, pay your bills and live right. But if you can kick some of that money or at least hold it tax free, you may want to do that. So let's say you get a $400,000 fee, you put it in the QSF, you take out 200 grand and you leave 200 in the QSF. What that allows you to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that money sits there and you can decide when you want to take it. You may take it on January 1 of the next year. So you save the taxes on that. You may want to structure it at some point down the road. So two questions, Paul. When that money is sitting in a QSF, can it be invested? Yes. Yes, it can. And, and in terms of returns, is there a certain type of investment? while we're waiting and that money's sitting tax-free for us to figure out what we want to do, is it earning interest? It is earning interest and you want to make sure we utilize a prudent account. Okay. And then the last thing, guys, that I thought was really beneficial. So I talked to a, a lawyer um, who has a lot of money in QSFs. And I'm like, why the hell do you have, why don't you take all this money? He says, because I can leave it tax-free, not pay taxes on it until I use it. It's invested and I can use it as collateral to borrow against. So I use tax-free loan 
I have this money in a QSF that can be used as collateral with the bank that they know I have the money if I need it, but I don't have to take it and pay taxes on it, which I think is a, if you're, if once you start getting into making a good bit of money more than you need to live each year, it is something that I thought was really beneficial. I want to raise it to everybody. So does anybody have any questions of Paul and then Paul, what we're going to do is get your info and then Rita, who everybody now knows and loves, the candy lady, is going to send all of that information to everybody who's on here. Oh, there's the first question. So I, I have a question. This is, this is amazing because, you know, a lot of times we run into situations where we will get the settlement funds deposit in our trust account and the client turns around and says, well, I want to structure now and we can't do that. Um, so I guess the question is, if, if in that situation, are we setting up different accounts? So let's say we want to stick the attorney's fees in a settlement fund, and we also want to stick the client's funds, or is it in one fund? It's in one fund. Yeah, it's in one fund, and uh, we operate out of that fund. And but then what are the limitations on withdrawing or transferring funds to the clients? There, there really isn't any. You, I mean... We, you know, uh, if the client asks for a distribution, we make the distribution. Or at that point, if he decides he wants to do a portion of it into a structure, we're, we're ready to move on on the structure. So this is essentially like a function to allow you to still structure your funds if you didn't immediately, and you and the attorney is holding on to the funds. That's correct. Right. Yeah, that's that's way station. I think that's the best way of, of explaining it. So last thing, I used the QSF when my clients could not decide on whether they wanted to structure or how much. And I'm like, we got to sign these papers, right? So I said, how about we do a QSF? Let's just put it in the fund. And then when you decide, then, and we got the money a lot faster and the fees were negligible on it. So if y'all haven't heard of a QSF, it is a great tool and it's something I want to make everybody aware of, all right? Any last minute questions? Paul, great, thank you. Uh, Paul Vega is amazing at what he does. And if anybody has any structure needs or any QSF needs, reach out to him, he's terrific. Thank you very much, Mike, I appreciate it. Okay, buddy. Uh, Rez, did you get that thing printed? Did you get it from Dustin? Yeah, I got it, it should be at the front desk. Okay, so we'll go grab that. Next, I wanna talk to my buddy Rez at Torch today about LawWorks. So some of y'all have been hearing about LawWorks, right? Um, everybody knows about the different groups. And if you've ever seen the Hulu WeWorks uh, documentary that's on right now, this is the anti-WeWorks, right? It actually is solvent and great and not a cult. Um, so I'm here at the Irvine office of LawWorks. And Rez, could you kind of tell us as the founder and the owner what this space is and what LawWorks is. And as we do this, I'm gonna show everybody a little bit of what the office looks like. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so the idea was actually my wife's idea. Um, and it was really a plug and play solution for new lawyers, mid-career lawyers and senior lawyers to come in, network, collaborate and use office space. So pre-COVID, um, it was an amazing venue to come every day You'd meet new attorneys, you'd meet insurance adjusters who are here on cases doing mediations, you would meet mediators, 
And three times a week, we had networking events, um, anywhere from five to 55, 60 people would show up. Um, so really, it was an almost instant, you plug in and you have your network built in. So when I started practicing law, I was in an executive suite with Regis, which was a great solution for me because I didn't have this long-term lease. And I, you know, I had a small office on a shared floor with other businesses, but none of them were other lawyers. So there were travel agents, there, there was almost every other kind of business and company other than lawyers. So I didn't have anybody to go to for help, for suggestions or for advice. And so LawWorks is that solution uh, for lawyers. Now, due to COVID and, and the restrictions on what we can do and the willingness of people to really network face-to-face, -face, um, we've added the technology piece to it where we are allowing our members now through technology to collaborate in real time, communicate uh, through Slack. Um, and we're watching that network grow. And it's been really incredible because the resources that we all share, the advice and suggestions we all share. Um, you know, when I look back at when I first started practicing, I would have loved to have a resource like this, somewhere to go to where I can instantly get some help from people who've been where I'm trying to go and who are dealing with some of the same issues that, that I'm dealing with. So having said that, um, LawWorks is really a collaboration of like-minded lawyers who wanna help each other, who wanna help each other grow, help each other win, uh, refer cases to each other. And then at the same time, if you need office space or conference room space, we have that. Um, and so that, that's LawWorks. Rez, how does it work with, I see a receptionist, uh, phone answering, mail. Are there different services that LawWorks can provide depending on, you know, if you want a full uh, office here that gets mail, that gets phone, can, can people do that? You can totally customize the plan. So if you want uh, us to answer your phones and send you your messages, we'll do that. If you want us to handle your mail and scan it and email it to you so you don't have to come pick it up, we'll do that. If you want a full-time office, we've got space. For, I think we've still got space for you. So um, whatever solution that best fits your needs to help you in your practice, we'll custom tailor it to whatever that is. And just real quick for Irvine, I know, Ballpark, like what's the ground floor to get in? I think it's like what, 250 a month or something. And then so the full, the full service could be as much as what? Yeah. So if you've got a firm that, and you've got multiple lawyers and it's so instead of buying uh, individual memberships for each lawyer, it's a thousand dollars a month. There's no commitment, uh, cancel anytime. And there's unlimited memberships with, and that's the highest tier. Um, our lowest tier, we're just rolling out a $199 a month plan. Again, no commitment, but you get access to what I think is going to be one of the most valuable pieces, which is our Slack workspace. Yeah. And we're building it out totally custom where within like three seconds, you can refer cases to each other and claim them. But two months, guys, if you try it, it doesn't work for you. You stop it. it I mean, this well, is I, just yeah. sign a two-year contract. Yeah, and I tell people this all the time, sign up. If you're not finding value or in two months, you just call me up, say, you know what? It wasn't worth it. I'll refund your money. Um, this is not a moneymaker for me. It is a solution to what I am predicting to be the disruption in our legal industry. I think in five years, the landscape's gonna be totally, totally different. And if we wanna succeed and win, then we do it together and we do it as a network and we do it collaborating together. Yeah, and I, so um, it's really I, what we're charging you is the cost of really just being able to run the, the, yeah. 
So while we're here, I want to, we got a couple more things on LawWorks and we're going to talk about some other stuff, but uh, Brooke is here. Brooke Bove happens to be right here and I'm walking in to see her. And so if any of you don't know Brooke, she is an amazing writer, uh, law in motion, appellate work. I mean, you've just been so well known. You're making me blush. Well, well just because of the shirt. You're well, looking it's like shirt. reflecting your shirt. But I know I'm putting you on the spot, but how do you use law works? Well, so for the last year and a half or so I've been working from home because kids are not in school and I have a bunch of kids. So uh, now they're back in school full time. So now I can come here. There's like a six hour window that I don't have to be at home anymore. I don't have to worry about things. So I can come here and I can get some quiet time. I can network. I can do whatever. The other thing I do, they've got, um, I have a podcast that I record every Friday. You want to walk with me? Yeah. Check this out, guys. Go ahead. Talk. They have a pot, they have these soundproof uh, booths here. So I can come here and do my, my podcast recording and it sounds way better than it does in my tiny little, in my office, in my house. Check this out. So you can come in here, it soundproofs everything. I can sit right in here. Nobody can hear a thing that I'm doing and I can't hear anything else that's going on out here. And I can sit here, I can like set up my microphone and do my podcast. And how soundproof is it? It's very secure. So. Talk, talk normal. Can't hear you. Isn't that cool? And guys, every time I come I here. I can't hear anything that's going on out here. And every time I come here, if you guys ever saw Ace Ventura, you know, where he's like, ah, he pulls it open. All right, that's good. <laughs> Thanks, Brooke. Appreciate it. So last thing, Rez. So some of y'all may have seen a little teasers on some of our social media that Gina and I have purchased a building in Sherman Oaks, uh, 19,000 square feet, and we're gonna move our offices um, into the summer. The top floor is 7,000 square feet. And Rez, what are we gonna do with that 7,000 square feet? Well, th this is super exciting. Um, so we've, we've partnered up um, and at the end of the summer, we're gonna be opening up the second LawWorks location in the Alder Laws of Ponta Law building on that top floor. Really exciting. It's gonna have free parking. Bottom floor is all parking. It's gonna be right off the 101 at Coldwater Canyon in Riverside. If y'all know where Hugo's Restaurant, the Whole Foods and all that right there, that Mariposa Hotel that just opened is right next door. So if you have clients that need to come in or anyone who needs to stay literally Next door is a brand new, uh, beautiful, but reasonably priced hotel. And we were talking and I was like, when are you guys coming to LA? And it's a perfect spot. So we're really excited. And we're gonna talk about the pricing. It's gonna be similar or maybe a, a little less. And there's gonna be some real benefits as well. And Rez, if you're a member of one, can you use the other? Yeah, so this is what's great. Yes, the answer is yes. And um, what's gonna be cool uh, about having that location, you know, a lot of us have cases in LA and Orange County and we're in between. So not only will you have access to both locations, but you'll have access to all the technology, um, the conference rooms. And it's not like a formal thing where you have to reserve or book a room a day or two in advance. Now, when we get busy, it would be great to give a heads up, but you know, pop in anytime. Um, and if you're in the area, pop in. And so the experience 
will be the exact same experience as you will have here in the Orange County office. You will have that in LA. I mean, totally seamless. So same services, we'll handle your mail, we'll handle your calls. Um, if you want to permanently rent an office, you can do that too. And the space in LA is absolutely beautiful. And, you know, we're just super excited to show it off once it's done. Lastly, I hope, I don't know if Gina's on this call, but I don't think she is. So anytime y'all come into the new building, I need you to say the following, man, a pickleball court on the roof would be awesome. Cause I've been working on it now for about a month and a half. <laughs> so thanks a lot, Rez. Okay, last topic till we get to the uh, focus group. Uh, a lot of people ask me, uh, I know you talk about depots, you talk a big game, Alder, but can you deliver in expert depots? So AJ and I are working on a file and you were on this depot I took two nights ago of Ron Kavitney, curling Job, shoulder guy. He's like the King's shoulder, the LA Kings guy. And I'm gonna, we're, we're about to get a copy of it and I'm gonna send it to everybody because it was one of my better efforts. And the only thing that got cut that night was Dr. Kavitney, right? So I wanted to send it to people because I've talked about examples of using the legal terminology to a reasonable degree of medical certainty as a sword. So you'll see when you read this depot, we don't even have it yet. I took it a couple nights ago where he would say, oh, I don't think she got a shoulder injury. It didn't come from this accident. So I would ask, but you saw the photos you've given testimony about mechanism. Was the mechanism of injury there to cause the type of shoulder injury? And then he would go and he would talk about how it's not there and it's not related and whatever. And there's really good examples of how you pull the doctor back to answer your question that you asked so that you have that to play at trial. But also when he says, oh, I don't know, I, you know, I hadn't looked at that. Then you use doc to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty or medical certainty. There was a mechanism of an injury present that could have caused this injury, correct? Oh, well, you know, she didn't complain of problems at the scene and what, Doc, I'm not talking about that. I know you've told me that. And I keep doing it until I've got a snippet with a question and an answer. And at the end of the depot, we busted him. AJ, what did you think? I think he sounded like a big liar. Basically what he was trying to do, advocate for the defense and saying with that type of impact, which the airbag deployed it on the on our client's uh, shoulder. She had a two-inch scar. Plus, she, the only thing she complained at the scene to the police officer was, my shoulder, my shoulder. And it's in the police report. But he's saying, no, that could be from normal wear and tear, but not from this accident that the car got totaled, all the airbag deployed it. I didn't mean all the particulars, but... <laughs> and uh, Mike did this while driving to the Lakers game. The deposition. Oh, somebody drove me. Oh, but okay. I was on the phone and I didn't, and people were like, so it didn't matter where I was. I was going to bust his ass. By the way, I remember Dr. Kavini, I got a, I did a trial where I represented a, a violinist who had a, a brachial plexus shoulder injury. I'll never forget. And he's at trial and there was like nine treaters and they all said this woman who was a concert violinist 
could not play again, right? Except for Dr. Kavitney, who said she could be, she's fine. And I remember, I'm like, Doc, tell this jury what you know about violin. And no shit, his answer was, I know what one looks like. So $7 million later, I said, Dr. Kavitney, let's go buy a, a Stradivarius. Um, all right, uh, last issue. Focus group, does anybody have anything they wanna say, comment, ask about before we get to this final issue where I want, I really would appreciate some help. I mean, collaboration and thought is really a collective thing. Um, so anything that we wanna talk about before we get here? Oh, Mike? Guys? Mike, I don't know if you yeah. can hear me. It's Jeffrey Shane. I'm driving, so I just got my picture. But thank goodness you did that to Kavitney. I'm very anxious to see. I was even going to ask AJ if we could get a copy of that. He's killed a lot of or tried to kill a lot of plaintiff's cases and brags about he's going after fraud and everything. And I know he's with Curl and Joe. So uh, this is going to be and a lot of us have shoulder cases so this will be a great example very very anxious to see your deposition in that well rita will send it to everybody but you know as a as a side jeff you reminded me i asked dr kavitney as i now ask every expert of which he agreed he said medical is not reasonable value for services medicare is not reasonable value for services and over defense having a cardiac arrest. Doc, you agree insurance is not reasonable value for services? And he says, yes. And then the other question is, you take liens in the past, yes. And when you've taken liens, it has not affected your credibility. And in fact, you did it because it was a helpful service to your patient. And he agreed with that. And I do that Beautiful. every depot. I give it to everybody and every person. And like I said, I will take your expert depots for free because I am getting gold that we then distribute to our fellow lawyers because that's what we do. And so now I'm asking for a little payback. Wonderful. So Dustin, uh, Mary and I, and I don't know if you know, Mary, Mary has switched from my firm to uh, working with Sean Mangoli just a, a, she's got a great opportunity there and she's kicking butt and she was really kicking butt on this case. Dustin came in and took it over. We're set for trial next week. And here's generally the facts. A car is coming. Our clients, elderly couple are turning left and the car hits them, T-bones them. Catastrophic event. At the time of impact, the car coming at them was traveling twice the speed limit. Speed limit was 35. At impact, the car hit our clients at 70. The electronic black box showed that five seconds before, that guy was traveling 99 miles an hour in downtown Oxnard, okay? He was a car salesman. The car was owned by the dealership. He's wearing a car salesman uniform. And at the scene, he tells the police, I was taking the car to go see a client, okay? Fast forward, the defense dealership says, well, wait, 
we got a police report like eight, nine months post-accident. And it says uh, on his way, he stopped at a 7-Eleven and he went to go look at a, a, a PlayStation 5. Oh, and by the way, he didn't have permission. He stole the car without our knowledge. So no permission and no course in scope. So here's the issue. We wanna prove that at the time of this incident, he had permission, he was in the course and scope, and as the defense argues that he did not materially deviate from his employee to pull him out of course and scope, okay? Last couple of facts. The defense argues that even if he had permission, by going to the 7-Eleven, by going to the PlayStation place, he materially deviated. But even if not, by traveling 99 miles an hour, it pulled him out of the course and scope. Okay? So I want to show you the law and I want to talk about this. But here's the great facts. About three months ago, they come up with this idea. We he stole the car, right? His supervisor, yeah, I had no idea he took the car. And we have testimony that we took by depot of another salesman who didn't work there anymore, who said, yeah, I was there that morning. And the salesman said, like they always do, somebody's gonna go get me lunch. And he told this guy, take the keys to a used car and go get me lunch. And we found the Chick-fil-A sandwiches in the wreckage that he had gone to pick up to bring to his supervisor. Pretty good evidence, right? So I think we're gonna prove that, and the supervisor lied about it. I mean, under oath, I don't know. They hid text messages. We got all this stuff now. So now the defense is, well, even if he had permission, the way he was driving was so bad that it was outside the scope, okay? So before I show you the law, I wanna, I wanna ask for people's opinion on a thing that just doesn't sit right with me. And I'm looking for metaphors and I'm looking for examples, but how can an employer say, I'll only say you're in my employee if you're, not negligent or you're not so negligent, right? In other words, how does an employer get to say, well, if you're driving 60, you are in an employee, but if you're driving 70, well, that's too much, right? So they're saying, well, he drove 99. I'm like, well, what's the number? What if he drove a mile over the speed limit? What if he drove 10 miles and over the speed limit? The fact is you gave him the keys at that point However he drives, you're on the hook. So I'd like to open it up and first kind of, anybody got any thoughts on how I can deal with that? Hey, Mike. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, this is Brian on this one. Yeah, yeah. From, a, from a defense perspective. I mean, so yeah, before you get into the law on that, the reality is that what they're basically saying is he's in the course and scope unless he was negligent. And he's negligent because he's driving excess, whatever, over the speed limit. 
But where, where do you draw the line? So do, do you leave it to the employer to now say, well, he's not wearing a seatbelt or he was, uh, didn't use his blinker or he didn't whatever. All, all indicia of potential negligence, whatever. But that's not the what the law, the law is designed to protect. If you're in the course and scope, you're in the course and scope. And if you're behaving in a negligent manner, that's there you go. I mean, that's that's all you that's all that should be required. Um, you, it's not up to the to the employer to limit the, the, the circumstances under which the employment uh, arrangement applies. So I want to argue. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I want to argue. Once they gave him the key. And by the way, I focus group this and most of the jurors said, this dude's 24 and he's in a fast car and you give him the keys? What the hell do you think he's gonna do, right? But here's the law. If you give permission, there is a jury instruction, 721 of the Casey instructions. It says, use beyond permission. The defendant claims that the driver was not, that they're not responsible for plaintiff's harm because the driver's use exceeded the scope of permission. The defendant has to prove the following, that by words or conduct, the defendant gave permission to the driver to use the vehicle for a limited time, plan, or purpose, and that the driver's use of the vehicle substantially violated the time, place, or purpose specified. So hey, Mike. The driver's use substantially violated time, place, or purpose. Go, guys. Hey, Mike, it's Brad. Yep. Um, I think a good analogy would be like the Domino's delivery driver. Like, you know, if this guy, like to your point, if he's using the vehicle for the anticipated time and purpose to go out and get the lunch, the fact that he drove 99 doesn't take him out of the course and scope. Um, yeah. it, just like a Domino's delivery driver, if, if, if he or she was driving to deliver a pizza, but they did 99 yeah. through the intersection, it's still vicarious liability. So I think you're good. Yeah, Mike, this, uh, well, this is Charles. I say, I, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say, I say the same thing, Mike. It doesn't, it doesn't fit the definition of time, place, or purpose. So he was doing, you know, all of those criteria are met. He was was within the time, it was in the for the at the place and for the purpose. And how he did it is a separate question. And so that would take out of out of play really any any negligence, um, which is against public policy. Yeah, I was gonna say, go ahead, Charles. I was gonna say really quickly, just taking off my lawyer hat and thinking like a you know like a layperson, I would think about what the instruction was. What was the commission, right? What was the commission to do if they if they didn't tell him don't drive over thirty five while doing this, then, you know, I would agree that if he's getting lunch, it's in the scope, unless they specifically told him, you know, drive this amount, you know, go ahead. I forgot to tell you, the driver has pled the fifth because he's being criminally charged for reckless driving. So the driver has no testimony. The supervisor and the dealership says, we have no idea how he got this car and why he was driving and he took it without permission. By the way, they didn't fire him until COVID hit for five more months and then they laid him off and they didn't check fired for cause. So, oops, sorry, but, but then we got this testimony of a guy who no longer worked there that says, yeah, the supervisor said, take the car and go get me food. And they lied about it. So what I was gonna argue is 
The question is not what he did in addition to going getting food, but whether he had the car and they said, get me food and he got them food. And that was not a substantial violation of time, place or purpose. As long as it was relatively on the way from the food to the dealer, there's no prohibition that he can't do more than that. That's not an issue for course and scope. That's the dealer, whether they want to pay him to go to 7-Eleven or not. But that's not an issue of their responsibility. They said, go get food. And that's what he did. And we know because the food was in the car. How did they pay for it, Mike? Huh? How did they pay for the food? You're not Who sure because we don't, the guy didn't testify and the other supervisors lying. And who knows? I mean, we don't know because the third-party witness didn't see any kind of transaction or whatever. He just was there when the guy said, go get me food. And he also said, the supervisor does this like every day. Mike, can I tell you an issue I have with it just as a layperson, as a lawyer? You, did you say he got a PlayStation? No, he. I don't know. Dustin, Mary, what did he do with the PlayStation? So he went to... He went to... He went to... Sorry, I had it on uh, phone also. He went to buy a game or buy a PlayStation. When he went, they did not take a credit card. So he then went to 7-Eleven, but I don't believe if it's clear, I think he went to 7-Eleven to get uh, cash and or a drink. So my question would be, did he need the cash uh, to buy the food? Did he buy them drinks when he was at 7-Eleven and picked himself up something? There was an orange juice unopened in the car that I don't know that that Chick-fil-A sells. So he probably bought that orange juice at that 7-Eleven. That's a good point. So the layperson, Mike, I'm just thinking this. I'm thinking, okay, the employer wants him to go get the food. That's the course and scope. Maybe he's going 90 miles an hour because he's trying to do a bunch of other stuff that he's not supposed to be doing. And that's what I would just, you know, uh, throw my hat on and say, look, I want them to go get me food. Sure. The reason he went 90 is because he decided to go get a PlayStation and go to 7-Eleven. Those things were not a part of the, you know, what I wanted him to do. So I don't know how the jury instructions will deal with that. Well, I just read you the jury instructions. Yeah. And Mike, what, Mike, what about the thought that you're talking about? It says that they, they exceeded the co- uh, course and uh, permission, but is it part of his job to pick up the manager food? And if it's part of his job, if they gave him permission and orders to go pick up the food, then conversely, how can they say going to 7-Eleven to get drink or money is out of the scope or running anything else? They've just told him you can go run errands. And I know this might not play well to a jury, but what about the fact that according to the IRS, he is an employee in the course and scope and they paid him for, I presume, for the time he was picking up the sandwiches and running the errands. Well, the the last interesting point is that the time records are electronic. And guess which is the only period for that two-week period where he is not clocked in that morning. Oh, and by the way, guess who has the ability to change the time records? Of which I'm like, so wait, you admit he was at the dealership. You admit that he started working. 
but you can't explain how just on this one day he's not clocked in during this accident. Did you guys change the records? Oh, we can't do that. So then I talked to the uh, former employee. He said, did they ever change your time records? He goes, man, they do it all the time. And just from, a, just from an employment law perspective, I do a number of employment law cases. It's all about control. So even if he's on the premises and they can control, you know, what he's doing or ask him to do anything, lift up a pen, then, you know, for employment purposes, you know, I, I would see him as being under their control. And also, Mike, uh, you mentioned there was Chick-fil-A wrappers in the car. At the time of the accident, was he on his way back to the dealership? We don't know. We were trying to find the actual Chick-fil-A to see the direction. But I guess what I'm saying is you could argue, even if he went to 7-Eleven and the video game store and all that other stuff, he actually did complete what the employer asked him to do, which was to get the food. And theoretically, he was like on his way back. So the errands that he ran that were not Chick-fil-A related aren't really relevant to at the time of the accident. He had completed what the employer asked him to do, and he was presumably on his way back. So... I think that's a, a decent argument as well. How does it resonate with the argument that they didn't tell him not to run other errands while he was out? Like as long well, do as you have a, do you have any uh, any background on the course on uh, the history with other employees uh, doing similar things? Um, no, do, they, is there a tac tacit acknowledgement you can you can you know we send you on an errand you can go and do other things. No, they say that they never send anyone on any personal errands ever. Except the guy who said uh, they, they had to pick up lunch. And that's something and that happens that that wasn't a one off. Right? In fact, they, I thought they have they have a name, the green pea for the new guy who goes and gets food for all the supervisors. But it never happens. I get it. it never happens. Except for they got a name for the guy. But it never happens. So be, so because there's no this never never happens there's no like policy procedures or like when you use any of our company cars this is the training you get on how to drive them or anything like that not really other than obey the law and don't drink i think what would really resonate with me mike if i was a juror is the argument that he wasn't supposed to go check out this playstation he went to 7-eleven to do whatever and now he was super late and therefore he was trying to just speed through red lights or whatever. And why should I, the employer, be blamed for him going and doing all this nonsense? Um, even if I did send him out for even let's assume that I did send him out for food. Um, he went ahead and just deviated so far away from what he was supposed to do. And then in order to try to make up for that, he was driving 90 miles per hour. Right. So they're saying that he substantially violated or deviated, substantially violated the time, place, and purpose specified. This is why I'm raising it, guys. Yeah, I, I still don't feel it, it, it fits any of those definitions. Time, place, or purpose. How does that, how does the speed affect any of those? So now let me add a fact. As a matter of law. Let me add a fact. Let's say they argue, we never would have expected this guy to go that fast. We did a background check. We checked his DMV records. Looked fine to me. And how many years did they go back? Two years, three years? 
Had they gone back five years, he had two other reckless driving tickets. Sounds like your Louisiana case. Oh, hello. So one of the big issues for, for the trial is whether we're going to be able to authenticate that and two, get it into evidence. Coincidentally, they just pulled their, um, their expert who's going to talk about all that off calendar saying we didn't notice it the proper way. So they're not going to produce that person for depo, which is obviously they don't want, to, they don't want me to put a Covitney hurting on them. Like, uh, did they give them access to like a Camry or did they say take any used car, well, you know, Ferrari, right? Or Corvette or something. So the defense, when I raised this with the judge, they said, well, he didn't say take the, this particular car. He just said, take a used car of which this is one of the used cars. So the defense's next defense is, well, he didn't give a directive to take this car. In the focus group, about one out of 12 people found that to be persuasive. And Mike, it's Charles. Did they do a, a workplace conduct investigation following the accident? None. And in fact, the day after, he made a workers' comp claim and they, they accepted it. That's pretty good evidence, too. Mike? Yeah. You know, with, with the, the trip to, for, to look at the PlayStation, you know, you think of it in terms of also employees while they're there at the location of the job, they take personal phone calls, they surf the internet, oh. they do all kinds of things while they're actually there on the site location. So is it so beyond reason or, or somehow it's okay when you're there at the location, but once you go off the location, you're not allowed to deviate or it's going to be anticipated deviate at all from the assignment? Dustin, write that down. That's dynamite. So what about while he's at the at the dealership? Doesn't he do stuff all the time? Surf the internet, make yeah. phone calls? We all do. We all do. Every employer deals with that. You know what I found is that a couple in our focus group, and maybe I shouldn't say this with this, but screw you guys. The defense, if you're listening to this, I'm coming for you, I asked. The, uh, anybody who worked at a car dealership was totally on our side. They're like, that shit happens all the time. People take cars all the time and not say anything. And they're like, take the keys. Mike, you said that they said they didn't tell them to take that car. Whatever happened on the depositions, did they say what their policy and procedure was about the keys or signing out cars? How did he get the keys? Yeah. So the person most knowledgeable said, we have a system where we have a machine. So the only way you can access the keys is you got to punch in your ID number, the customer you're taking the keys for. And this record shows that there was no record of that. So I was like, so you can only get the keys from the machine and it's, there's no record. How do you get the keys from, if it was not right? They go, we don't know. He must've stolen it. You, so then I asked the former salesman, hey, you only can get the keys from the machine. He goes, oh, in theory, but the machine never worked. It was always broken. So they just put the extra keys in a drawer in the front of the sales office and we would just take them from there. Oops. So um, 
But the, the, the last issue I want to talk about, and, and this is it, and I want to see how you guys think. The driver's pleading the fifth. We couldn't take his depot. But the only evidence that he went to the 7-Eleven, that he went to the PlayStation, is his statements that he made at the scene at the hospital on video to the police. And he said all this stuff. And then he pled the fifth. So I understood. So one of our motions in limine is to preclude all information gleaned from any of those same day examinations. And I'd like to hear y'all's thoughts on he's a party. It's a party admission, right? But does a party admission require that we first be able to cross-examine on that issue and then use the party admission as an impeachment. But I have used party admissions without impeachment and just gone directly and said it. So any thoughts on, obviously we're gonna to try to exclude it. If we exclude it, I don't know the, how they prove that he did anything once he took the car, other than drive the car. So obviously that motion to eliminate if we win it is huge. But any thoughts on, and Brian, what do you think as well as a defense? Hey, I know he said this on video, but no lawyers were there. We don't know what his medical condition was. We don't know what drugs he had. I know he said he gives consent. They've all properly authenticated the video, but we didn't have a chance to cross-examine him in any way. Yeah, let me just make sure I'm, I understand this clearly. So, oh, can you can you hear me, Mike? Yeah. Can you hear me? I'm in a yeah, I'm in a bad area. Um, yeah. Just so I'm clear, there's certain uh, state there's certain statements in that uh, that early uh, commentary that you want excluded, right? Is that what you're saying? I'm, I apologize, Mike. The accident, I'm the police I'm in, uh, and at the scene and at the police at the hospital. He said, I stopped at the 7-Eleven. I did the other stuff. But that's the only evidence. Anybody else? Brian's phone's not working. Mike, what about the 7-Eleven video? Even well, if you okay. So let's assume the only thing, they have a 7-Eleven video, but what does that show? That he went to go pick up a, an orange juice. I'm concerned about the PlayStation. Any thoughts? All right, I got uh, 38 researchers here. I'm looking for some free research. Brooke, you're my girl, come on. So guys, I wanted to end here. I wanted to say thank you very much. This has been really helpful. And some of the ideas, some of the thoughts are just great. But what we just did is what I did. We focus grouped this at Brad Wallace's new focus group facility in Sino. And I want to end... Uh, we're going to send everybody the info for Brad, but I used to do um, issue-based focus groups, not where you have a clopening, a closing and an opening and a deliberation, but basically just what I'm doing now, you feed facts and you get jurors reaction and you feed more facts. And that's called an issue-based focus group. And we did this about three weeks ago at Brad's new facility. So Brad has built out one of the most amazing focus group facilities. When I did it and I got the facility for free, 
and I would hire someone to find me jurors at 50 bucks a head and I would pay them the jurors $100 a head. It cost me $2,200 to do a focus group for three hours with the free facilities. Brad all in, getting you the jurors for the three hours with the facility videotaping it for you is what, Brad, 2,800 bucks? With the jurors and the facility fee and the food and everything, it's a little over four grand for four a four-hour focus group with all the audio video included. So if any of you want to do four grand for absolutely the best information you can get, and if any of you guys want to do an issue-based focus group, either to prepare for trial or early in your case to help you figure out, just like what we're doing, a discovery plan, an idea I'm happy to help you in any way, give you all my forms. I'll even do it for you. And I act as a third party lawyer who's a focus group expert and I lead the discussion. I gotta tell you for four grand, you will learn more about your case than you can possibly imagine. And these non-lawyers come up with stuff that you would never have thought about in a billion years. It's really an amazing process. So we're gonna end Rita, who everybody loves, is going to send Paul Vega's information. Brad, if it's okay, we'll send the information about your facility. We're going to send you LawWorks information. Does anybody have anything they want to add before we end? I hope everybody has a great weekend, and I hope y'all are getting something out of this. Really, I'm getting a lot out of it, and I really appreciate everybody. We have a community here. Anything y'all need, you just got to ask. And we're also going to send you that Kvitney Depot. Feel free to talk about it with me at any time. Take care, guys. We'll see y'all. Thank you, Mike. Have Thank a good you, one. Mike. Thanks, Mike. Bye, Mike. Bye. Go, Tiger.